The end of the universe happens to be in the United States. I have seen it. And, oddly enough, it's in Houston, Texas. I know. I know. I was shocked, too. I left the comedy club there and walked down the street. On one corner, there was a Starbucks. And across the street from that Starbucks, in the exact same building as that Starbucks, was a Starbucks. <laughs> At first, I thought the sun was playing tricks with my eyes. But no, there was a Starbucks across from a Starbucks. And that, my friends, is the end of the universe. What I like about that clip from Lewis Black is that in the humor, we get an understanding about something. We get a point of view. And that's a recurrent theme from what I've seen and what I've read, is that when something is funny, it's funny for a reason. And I think what it is about comedians is that they find the essence of something. They can notice when something is ridiculous and call it out. And we aren't always aware of the ridiculousness or the absurd nature of something until we see it pointed out in a way like that. And comedians are really good at this. And anytime you want to test your understanding of something, ask if you can make a joke about it. Is there a way for you to bring humor to the situation because you understand something so completely? Lewis Black gets at something when he says that there's a Starbucks across from a Starbucks. And that's that Starbucks um, knows this. Starbucks is aware of this. Starbucks put those stores there purposefully. And they did that because of traffic patterns and how people move and where people are likely to go to. That idea was reinforced uh, by the book Traffic by Tom Vanderbilt. And that book really opened my eyes to a lot of the ways that human actions manifest in the way that we drive. And Vanderbilt has a blurb from on his book from uh, Malcolm Gladwell. So it's that kind of a book, that kind of a, uh, here's some psychology research, here's some studies from the field, and here's how people react in traffic. And Vanderbilt does a nice job of tying those things together. But there were, there were three parts in the book that we're going to cover on today's podcast. Part one is about adaptation and how we adapt to things. Part two is about feedback and what role feedback has in making us better or worse drivers. And part three is about the assumptions we make and how anytime we operate, we operate with some set of assumptions. But sometimes those assumptions can uh, be wrong. Ready? Adaptation is a really interesting human feature. It makes us really good at some things, and it makes us really suitable to live. As, as Charles Darwin wrote to the effect that it's not the fittest animal that survives, but the one um, most adaptable to the situation. And sometimes this makes us excellent humans, but sometimes it kind of leads us astray in our decision-making. In the book, Vanderbilt talks about hedonic adaptation. This is the idea that we can get used to things. And there's really two parts to this idea. There's, there's stable things, and then there's variable things. And the way this manifests in his book is the idea of moving to the suburbs to have a larger house. 
there's this idea, especially in California, where you can you drive until you can afford to buy. So I, I visualize that in the high real estate areas of a place like San Francisco, where property prices are really high, if you wanted to um, to live or to work in San Francisco, but you couldn't afford it, you have to drive out of the city until you can af- afford to buy something. And this makes sense. I've done this with my family. I know people who have done this. And um, it, it makes sense, except for one thing. We really get used to things that are stable. So we get used to things like the square footage of our home. We may decide to move because we want more space, but we quickly adapt to that. I notice this when I go on vacations with my family. And there's only four of us, but for us to live in a cruise Um, room or to live in a hotel room for a few days. It's not that tight of quarters. We, We get used to it. We adapt to it. And part of the reason is because we're not in those places for extended periods of time. But when, when it comes time to go to sleep at night or to get up in the morning or to get dressed or to share a single bathroom, we adapt to all of those things really well. And that's because that's a stable variable. It's not something that changes. Another example that's uh, prevalent to the uh, new year of 2018 is, is weight. There's a lot of people who have New Year's resolutions to lose weight. And we can ask, well, why do we need to lose weight in the first place? And it's because we've gained weight. So weight changes at such incremental steps, a little here, a little there. On average, I think men gain a pound a year after they turn 21 years old. So weight is the stable thing that we just get used to or all of a sudden you look down and you're 10 pounds overweight or 20 pounds overweight or, or whatever the number is. And so weight and home size, those are both relatively stable variables. So we get used to those things. We adapt to those things. Whereas the commute, the time you spend in your car getting to the place you need to be, that is variable. That's not a stable uh, factor in your life. It could be quick some days, it can be long other days, um, but because that's variable, we don't get used to it. We don't adapt to it. It's not that consistent reinforcement of things. In another book that I just finished by Jan Chipchase, he talks about how commutes could change if they were predictable. What if instead of driving to work an hour, it took you two hours to get to work, but someone else was driving you? He says that this is the case in parts of Asia. And it's a different attitude toward commuting. So because this is a variable factor, because we don't know what our commute is going to be every day, we can't get used to it. And that can cause us stress. Whereas when we go home to the larger house with the big yard so that our kids can run around in it, that we adapt to. So it doesn't bring us the same pleasure. To put it another way, the stress from commuting will never go away, but the joy from home ownership or a large home ownership is going to flatten out over time. In a conversation between Danny Kahneman and Rory Sutherland, Kahneman said this, quote, The most interesting thing that I think we found in the research on happiness is the focusing illusion. Anything that you can think about, you will exaggerate the importance Nothing in life is as important as you think it is while you're thinking about it. So just thinking about anything makes it look bigger, end quote. And we can tie this into adaptation where when you get used to seeing 
your new kitchen countertops, or when you get used to seeing a large backyard, or when you get used to seeing space between your walls and your neighbor's walls. You get used to those things, so you don't focus on them. Whereas, on the commute, every day there's a new idiot to deal with. And Kahneman addresses this when he talks to Sutherland. Quote, You can think that having a bigger car or a bigger house will change your life, but in fact it won't. But if you change the amount of time per day that you spend with friends, you will not get used to that. End quote. So we get used to this idea that bigger is better, but we need to tweak it a little bit and, and, and say that bigger and stable we get used to, but things that are variable, things that change over time, like time with friends on the positive side, or time in the car commuting on the negative side, we don't get used to those things. This is what Tom Vanderbilt actually writes in his book. Quote, This seems worth it, because the bigger house provides such a boost to his quality of life. But gradually that rosy glow fades. He quickly undergoes what psychologists call hedonic adaptation. Suddenly the newer, bigger house just seems normal. Everyone else has the same, newer, bigger house. Meanwhile, the commuter has lost time, more of which cannot be made, unlike money. This means less time to do things that are actually shown to bring happiness. He's locked into a longer commute, and studies show that the longer a commute is, the more prone it is to variability, to be longer or shorter than you expect. And some studies show that we are bothered more by changes to our commute time than by the actual time itself. As Harvard University psychologist Daniel Gilbert argues, you can't adapt to commuting because it's entirely unpredictable. Driving in traffic is a different kind of hell every day. End quote. That's our first point of this podcast, is that we should consider what we adapt to and what we don't adapt to when we make decisions. For things that are stable over time, we can choose to cut back or to reduce what we're willing to pay because we know we'll get used to it. For things that are variable, for things that can change, we should think about how that is going to positively affect you, like time with friends, or how that's negatively going to affect you, like commuting to work. The second thing that really stuck out in this book is about feedback and why driving makes for a terrible feedback system. What makes good feedback is that it's consistent, immediate, and it comes from someone who knows what they're talking about. We can see this if we think of something simple like playing chess or playing tennis. Those two games give us a chance to understand that if you had a coach sitting next to you saying, try this, don't try this, that was good, that was bad, think about this, think about that, then we can really develop those kinds of skills. But when we're driving, it really reminded me of Nassim Taleb's turkey problem, where we don't really know what's going on in the world around us. There could be many, many near accidents, many near misses, but we really aren't aware of them. We can do well for a long time and not really know that we're bad drivers. Not only that, if we get into an accident or we have a fender bender, we tend to move around cause and effect to suit our own egotistical needs. Well, if there was an accident, well, the roads were slick because it was raining. If your car gets dinged in the parking lot, it's because the spaces are too narrow. Who put those in? If you get rear-ended, well, it's the other guy's fault behind you, obviously. This is called the fundamental attribution error, and we, it's, it's this 
tendency we have to shift the blame around to suit our own wants and needs, and, and kind of to protect our own egos. In some ways, driving is really similar to investing. Driving in good weather on flat roads is kind of like investing in a bull market in times of peace. To be better drivers or investors, we need more complete feedback systems, and that comes with technology. The first driving technology we see every day, but we really take it for granted, and that's the signs all around us. Vanderbilt explains that early on, signs were in a variety of shapes and colors, and there wasn't any universality to it. One town could have purple stop signs, another town might not have stop signs at all. But signs were the first technology that allowed us to be a cooperative species, that they allowed you to know when to go and when it was your turn to go. And traffic works best as a cooperative network, and signs allow for that. Red octagons mean we all stop, green lights mean we all go. More technology can allow for better coordination, and more technology can allow for better feedback. In the book, Vanderbilt talks about how radar installed in cars can run or influence the adaptive cruise control. That means that if you have your cruise control set and someone goes around you on the highway, the radar within your car will ping the car in front of you and, and slow you down if you get too close to them. That's a whole set of data system that humans can't understand. Humans don't have that ability to ping the distance in the same way that a radar does. We can visualize the distance. We can use our other senses to get an understanding of the conditions around us. But there's many more data points than humans can collect. And so we need to allow for more technology. We need to allow for better data collection so that we have a more cooperative experience on the roads. Another example from Vanderbilt's book that was fascinating was the ability to see faces and what that means. In one study, um, scientists had their students go out on the roads and cut in front of cars. And people who were driving convertibles tended to stop sooner and to honk less at these students who would walk out in front of them. And the idea is, from these researchers and from other studies done, is that if we can see faces, we act differently. And if we move this idea to social media, we can see that this is true. We, we note that people who have actual profile pictures of themselves will behave in different ways than people who act anonymously. And that anonymity while driving is something that Vanderbilt thinks makes us worse drivers. It makes us less cooperative because so much of our existence, of our evolution, has depended on reading faces and reacting to people and picking up subtle cues. And when you're in your 6,000-pound box of metal, picking up on those cues is really difficult. Another feedback system that can make us a more cooperative driving system is congestion pricing. There was an interesting article that came out at the end of 2017 where congestion pricing in a new section of DC Highway went up to $26 or so. And people thought, this is crazy. How can it cost so much money for this? And and the fact is, is that that's how congestion pricing works. There's a lot of costs associated with driving that we may not be bearing. And congestion pricing is a way to shift some of those costs around. 
All in all, this section on congestion pricing, and this section on seeing faces, and this section on radar and adaptive cruise control, made me wonder about how other ways we can get good feedback in our lives. In what ways can we use our smartphones that are in our pockets to give us good feedback on the things that we eat or how long we sleep? That's something that's really difficult about writing a blog and having a podcast, is the feedback mechanisms for what people want and what people don't want are kind of hard to gather. But Vanderbilt's book has got me thinking about it. The third thing that stuck out was this idea about assumptions. Every interaction we make, every decision we make, comes with some assumptions. Maps are a good example of this. There's no one-to-one map, because that kind of map includes too much information. That map is the world. But we need something more than a map with monsters in unknown areas, like the original cartographers would fill in for places that they didn't really know what was there, but they didn't want to leave a blank space on the map. I was revisiting this idea uh, via the 1950s and the Dan Carlin podcast that he did on the Cuban Missile Crisis, and uh, Dwight Eisenhower needed to know what was happening in Russia. There was a lot of questionable intelligence. There were spies and double spies and triple spies, and and his on-the-ground intelligence wasn't that good. So when he got the chance via the CIA to use the U-2 spy plane to fly over parts of Russia, he took it. He needed to gather more information. So Eisenhower's map of Russia, of the uh, Russian military system was was poor until he got this other data point. And that allowed him to have enough information to go forward. He was allowed to make certain assumptions with these aerial photos rather than without them. And we make these kind of assumptions all the time. And we should be careful about them. In another good book I read, A History of the U.S. and Five Market Crashes. The big thing that tied together a bunch of crashes is this idea of liquidity. It's the assumption of liquidity. So when people develop an investing strategy, they develop that strategy with the assumption that there will be liquidity, and that is a terrible assumption to make. That's true, too, for Bitcoin, where if we think about all of the people who have Bitcoin right now... um, you won't be able to sell if everyone else is selling. Liquidity will dry up. And that's an assumption that we make when we invest in Bitcoin and we want to sell Bitcoin or, or any other investment, really. In traffic, there are other assumptions that we make. One assumption is the seeing assumption. This is true for um, cyclists on the road. And Vanderbilt found out that the the safest place to be a cyclist or the safest place to be a pedestrian is where there are a lot of cyclists or pedestrians. So in New York City, Manhattan, for example, uh, it's safe to be a pedestrian because though the cars almost expect pedestrians to walk out in front of them. So that's an assumption that people make is that, oh, if I'm seeing these things, then there must be many of those things. And, and in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman calls this the uh, what-you-see-is-all-there-is idea. So this idea of cyclist or pedestrian is present in your mind. It's an assumption you're making. 
Another assumption we make is the way things are worded or expressed. Vanderbilt really exposed to me this idea of uh, accident versus drunk driving, where we see we think that drunk driving is this terrible thing that could have been prevented. But um, accidents, we, we, we almost view those as, as bad luck, where, where they're often not that. Accidents are often the driver's fault. It's from going too fast, or for not paying attention, or for acting too recklessly while you're in the car. All of those things are causes of accidents. But this word, just using the word accident, there's an assumption that, well, well, it wasn't all your fault. And in many cases, there's enough fault that, you know, you should have known better. Overall, I liked Vanderbilt's book. It was uh, a good synthesis of driving, something we all do, and psychology, something we're all susceptible to. It's a book that would be for anyone who enjoys Malcolm Gladwell, but a little more focused. It's a book for, I think, anyone that would do investing, and especially the parts on feedback systems. It made me wonder what underlying things, what other near misses have I had as an investor that I'm not aware of, but that I should have learned a lesson from. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes.